Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special rebroadcast of the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town, town of Brattleboro. Hi, Emily. Hi, Olga. And we are rebroadcasting an episode we did in... 2019. It aired on Friday, September 20th, and it was called Legislating Morality and Drugs, Part 1. And it was with a guest by the name of David Poses, who unfortunately passed away last week. He was an author, an activist, and an advocate for recovery and speaking on um, substance misuse disorder. And he joined us to talk about what it meant to build policy that actually supported people who were going through recovery. And we wanted folks to hear this again, because uh, we really appreciated that interview with David. Emily, I, I know you had some thoughts you wanted to share. Yeah, so David and I actually met each other in high school. Um, we had the same therapist in New York and um, hung out a few times. Our therapist introduced us to each other um, because we were actually both about to go to Marlboro for undergrad. And so David then attended Marlboro grad for a few years. And then we reconnected when I became a legislator and David had, I don't know a better phrase for it. He'd essentially come out of the closet as a lifetime, lifetime opioid user. Mm-hmm. He had been using since we'd known each other in high school and had gone through various phases, as folks will hear in this show, had gone through various phases of his life where he was using heroin and then using buprenorphine and um, very occasionally not using anything, but is, was incredibly articulate about not just providing resources for folks who are in recovery, but providing real resources that meet the needs of people who are actively using. Mm-hmm. And one thing that always struck me in all of the conversations that we'd had, and he worked really closely with police departments around Vermont. He always lived in New York, but um, really sort of respected how attentive Vermont it was to the issues of opioids. But one thing that always struck me when we were talking is that most folks who use as actively as David had don't tend to live as long as he did and with um, as little legal trouble as he had. And that is for the most part, and David, you know, was quite articulate about his sort of lifelong mental health challenges and his depression and why he used, but he grew up with significant financial privilege and he continued that significant financial privilege through his life. So he was able to um, maintain a professional life. He was married, he had two kids and never spent very little sort of on the wrong side of the law because he didn't need to engage in so many of the behaviors that so many folks who use opioids need to engage in in order to get their, ha- get their needs met, get their habit fixed, um, get their fix. And so that really talking to him about that and what his experience as someone who was a lifelong user of opioids was like compared to so many of the folks that I know and have worked with in Brattleboro or been in community with in Brattleboro was really 
impactful to me to really like get my head fully around what harm reduction means. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's about ensuring that supplies are cleaner and that folks can sort of decide between buprenorphine or sobriety or heroin or whatever it is, um, and that there's someone there when they need them or when they want them. And so that's, for me, that's the real legacy of a lot of his work. Um, Because of his privilege, he was able to talk, um, to really come out of the closet and still be considered someone worthy of conversation um, and worthy of respect and as sort of a legitimate voice in this movement. And so as someone who also grew up with some degree of privilege, I really just appreciate how much he used that for good and for the good of, you know, everyone who struggles with mental health challenges and uses opioids in our communities. And so I'm really sorry to see him go. And I'm sorry that we won't be able to continue our conversations and um, learn from each other, but I'm really glad that we have this episode and it is just as relevant today as it was in 2019 when we recorded it, maybe more so. Mm-hmm. And then also encla- encourage our listeners, if you want to get involved in talking more about these issues, the Consortium on Substance Use in Brattleboro um, has done some really great work on this. And they have joined with a new um, statewide coalition of organizations and Vermonters who are interested in decriminalizing substances in order to make it safer for those who use them. Thank you, Emily. I just want to add to the beautiful things you just said. One thing I appreciated so much about our conversation with David, and if you if you look online, you can find a number of interviews with David. He spoke through a number of podcasts and different platforms, and I always appreciated it because So often when we as a community are talking about complicated issues and talking about folks with that lived experience or who are experiencing those complicated issues, we talk about them. We talk around them. It's so rare that we can hear from folks who actually have that lived experience. And I understand why, as you mentioned, sometimes people don't want to share They don't want to talk about other parts of their life, and that's fair. And so I really appreciate when folks like David will come forward and share their thoughts and their insights and their experience, because I just think as a society, we are better for it. And um, I just want to always thank him for for that. And for folks who don't know, uh, David is also the author of the memoir, The Weight of Air, a story about the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. And you can find that on his website. I will put a link in the show notes there as well. Here is the rebroadcast of our 2019 conversation with David. Thank you, everyone. Okay, we don't know what that was all about because we are still (laughs) learning everything in the studio. But hey, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and my co-host, Emily Kornheiser. Who curses like a sailor and really tries to keep it together when I'm on air. (laughs) So please don't call the FCC. (laughs) Hello, Brattlebro. Well, actually, that was kind of strange that that went out at all because I had turned off your mic. Mm. So it shouldn't have picked up at all. 
um, which means we have even more to learn. But isn't this exciting? Because we're talking about how to engage with your community, how to engage with democracy. And I think we just proved that sometimes it's not always a smooth process. And today we are starting our month of legislating morality and talking about legislating morality. And I think cussing on the airways is falls actually firmly into <laughs> legislating morality. So I did that on purpose. Yes, it was it was a teachable moment, it folks. Was. Absolutely. <laughs> so we have a guest today who we will be bringing on air very soon. His name is David Poses, and he was someone who, when he was about 16 years old, started using heroin and then spent the next 16 years trying to stop using heroin. Now he's been sober for about 11 years, and he writes and speaks about addiction and mental health. So I am excited, you know, given some of the conversations that's happening in our community right now, I'm really excited to hear what David has to say on some of these issues. I am too, because I think we're using this time to really take a step back, try to understand the issues so that we all feel more informed as we engage deeply with them. And so excited to just like get right in, talk about what's effective, what's not. And how do you build policy or maybe you don't around yeah. some of these social issues? Absolutely. So, hey, David, I'd love to welcome you to the show right now. How are you today? Uh-oh. Can he not hear me? We thought we had one thing taken care of. Um, so, you know what I'm going to do, Emily? What are you going to do? Olga? I'm going to put you on the hot seat Ooh, while yes. I hang up the phone and call David back. Okay, that sounds okay? great. So yes. we're going to do that. So over the summer, we have been talking about, in our community of Brattleboro, um, about who's living here. I think there's been a lot of conversations about who deserves public space, who, what rules we use in public space. And part of those conversations have been about folks who are using opiates in our community. And one piece of that that's been really interesting to me throughout this process and through these conversations is that so many of us are able to engage in our addictions, whatever those are, in private. And some of us don't have private space. And so we need to do those things in public. And so behaviors that often people can engage in in and not be criminalized for when they're in private, um, when people don't have that access to private space, then become criminalized behaviors. So I think that's really part of this network of conversations. That's um, who can use substances where, what treatment options are available and accessible, um, both accessible in terms of money and dollars and health insurance, and then also accessible in terms of who's available to prescribe them, what hoops do you have to jump through? Fantastic. Thank you, Emily, for sitting in the hot seat. Any time. It's <laughs> when I really shine. So, hey, I want to welcome David Poses to the show. How are you, David? I'm great. How are you? Awesome. Now that we can hear your lovely voice. Cool. <laughs> so, David, um, I gave the audience the quick bio that you had given us. When it comes to addiction and, and mental health, what is your focus right now as someone who speaks and and writes on the subject. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I have a couple of uh, key points. Um, one is that, I, for for me at least, um, or I guess I should start by saying that everyone is different, so there's really no universal, but I believe that most 
addicts um, come to use drugs because of some underlying issue. Um, you're trying to, for, for me, it was depression. Um, I couldn't uh, handle my feelings. I was too ashamed um, of it. And so uh, heroin was a coping mechanism. Um, and I think that's probably fairly common. So um, the idea of uh, getting sober triages your addiction, but in the absence of um, dealing with the underlying issues, um, I think you're you're ripe for relapse. Um, so I guess that whole kind of circle, which I tried to distill very fast, um, is is one. And then um, the other is just the idea of um, treatment in general and our mm -hmm. approach. Um, buprenorphine was life saving for me, um, so I'm I'm basically a, a walking commercial for it um, at this point. Um, it may be worth mentioning that this is not a paid endorsement, <laughs> um, but, um, uh, I, you know, it, it, it works. Um, I was one of those people who I think probably, you know, plenty of addicts are the, um, I'm never going to get well. Everybody else can do it except me, um, you know, hopeless and helpless kind of a person. Um, and buprenorphine really does work. Um, I mean, I, it was a very long struggle for me, and within minutes, um, I knew that I found the answer. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, you know, spreading that message around um, has been kind of central to my uh, operation, I guess. Could, we, could um, you actually help us understand that better? Because we are at the point in our community where people speak fairly casually about sort of the range of options you know people know there's sure. a methadone clinic and they know that bup is a thing that's sometimes in the yeah. street and sometimes not but like what does it do what does it feel like to take it why does it work for you personally okay um well i mean i guess uh methadone is a synthetic opioid right so if opioid is a if, is a category then methadone um, is to heroin as, uh, you know, vodka is to scotch. Um, so if you're going from heroin to methadone, you're, you're basically just kind of swapping your, your um, you know, your poison. Um, buprenorphine is a partial opiate antagonist. So um, if you think of it like um, uh, opioids work by flooding your brain with uh, serotonin and dopamine, right? And so while that happens, um, if it's a flood, uh, there's going to be some erosion. And so when the water stops, you're standing on a beach that's, you know, 20 feet lower than you were in the first place. Um, and I guess that's a really mild way to describe withdrawal, but it's, um, it's, it's ongoing. I mean, there's a lot of science that shows that um, it, it does cause permanent damage um, at a cellular level in your brain. Um, again, it's different for everybody. But um, so basically what buprenorphine does is it works as um, a heavy blanket on your opiate receptors. Um, so, you know, you hear a lot or you hear and read a lot about, uh, you know, those pesky cravings um, that addicts get. And that's really it, it doesn't do justice to the word or to, to the, the feeling, um, you know, craving is like, uh, you know, it's a hot day and, and I sure could go for some ice cream. Like that's a craving with, with, um, heroin. It's, I need this. I'm going to die if I don't get it. Um, which makes it very hard to live your life. Uh, you know, if that's what's going on in your brain. So buprenorphine silences that, um, by wrapping itself around your opiate receptors. So you're not, you're not high. Um, you, with methadone, you know, it, it, it is, 
an opioid, so you get high from methadone. Um, so you're not high on buprenorphine, you're even, basically. You're not, um, you know, the erosion, uh, they brought in more sand, so you're at the level that you were at. Um, your brain is not screaming for, for drugs, um, and everything is okay. And with that, um, you know, from that platform, uh, for me at least, you know, that made recovery possible. Um, I couldn't even think about uh, you know, dealing with the the um, underlying issues until I had you know even footing. Um, so, does that answer your question? Okay, that is very helpful. Yes, yes thank it you. It really is. Okay, if I the, feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, no, we're not. The sand stuff. Okay. I think it, you paused for a moment, wondering if you had sort of dug your metaphor a little too deep, and I think it was actually really helpful. I didn't even. I did not. I did not mean that pun. Actually, I was just in the visual with you. Um, but I, I, I think that really helped. We will. Don't on. worry. Okay. So cool. just for a quick break, because I forgot to do this at the top of the hour, and I am supposed to. So if you are just joining us, this is the Montpelier Happy Hour, and you are listening on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests, not the radio station. You can stream on the web at WVEW.org. Ha! Huh. And I'm speaking with David Poses. Okay, so David, you and I spoke briefly before coming on air, just just to touch base, and I really would love to to uh, dig in if we're talking about sand and gravel and digging ourselves holes, maybe <laughs> in this case. Um, right. You know, one thing we are curious about in this segment that we're going to be doing with the Montpelier Happy Hour on social issues and legislating morality, you know... Uh, the state of Vermont has been trying to do a lot around getting people treatment who need it, um, decriminalizing uh, marijuana, you know, all these different things around substance use. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts? I mean, if someone just says to you, uh, ad- we can legislate around or build policy around addiction, kind of like, what's your thought on that? Is that even the best place for us to be focusing? at the um, policy level. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, it's a health issue. And it so happens that drugs are illegal, so it becomes a matter of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know a lot more today than we did, uh, you know, even a couple of years ago. Um, and the fact that opioid addiction is a national health emergency, not a national police emergency, um, you know, I think that that tells us a lot. So, um, I mean, the idea of, uh, you know, should drugs be illegal and what do we do about that is an entirely separate issue in my mind from, um, you know, w- what do we do now that drugs are here uh, and we and we want to help, um, you know, get people well. I mean, I think um, there are a lot of um, the, the stereotypes and misconceptions out there, uh, you know, um, addiction is a disease. Um, in the 1930s, when AA was founded, they um, started calling addiction a disease as a way to um, get around the stigma. Um, and so today we know that it is a disease, um, but it is treated by a lot of people as, as some kind of moral defect, um, which was the problem in the, in, in the 30s, um, why they came up with the disease term in the first place. So I don't think that it's so cut and dry um, because... If you think of it as a disease, which it very much is, 
and you need these drugs in order to survive whatever it is that, that you're doing, um, then, you know, when it becomes a matter of survival, just as uh, it, it's, it's interesting how um, when we hear about the, the starving, you know, mother who steals food for her kids, you know, that's okay. Nobody has a problem with that, you know, and, and there's almost like a good for her. <laughs> um, but when there's um, a drug addict, uh, you know, who goes out and steals to support his habit, um, it's, it's a moral issue. And I think the, the problem happens when, um, you know, the, the disease distinction, um, it's, not, it's not so black and white. So if you commit a crime, um, which is immoral, then the crime was still committed. And so if you stole, you know, whatever it was, um, then you're still responsible for that. You can blame the disease as much as you want to, um, and, and it certainly makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're um, you know, suffocating, you're going to do whatever you can to breathe. So, uh, I mean, you know, I, I get it, and I think plenty of people have been there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, a crime was still committed, uh, and, and there does need to be some, you know, accountability for it. I, I, I don't think that we can just say, um, you know, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. You have a disease. Don't worry about it, because... I think, um, you know, we all know that there's a, there are a lot of differences between, you know, say cancer and um, heroin addiction. However, um, apart from the moral business, yeah. One of the big differences between cancer and heroin addiction is that the medicine for cancer is, well, I guess actually like given neoliberal health policy right now, I don't even know if the medicine for cancer actually is that readily available considering how much it costs to get sick nowadays. But, um, <laughs> you know, let's say even 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so the medicine not being readily available for heroin addiction means that people are making sort of rational decisions to commit crimes in order to access the medicine they need, in this case, heroin, right? Uh, and yeah, I mean, yes. So in, in the framework of the disease that they're dealing with. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so what can we do from a policy perspective to sort of lessen the impacts of the disease that way? So there's, you know, one conversation that I think we should have further down the line about, like, how do we just keep people from dying? Which is really <laughs> right. important, yep. okay. right? Like, let's keep people sure. from dying. But how yep. do also sort of the crimes that occur as a result of people's addiction and people's you know, search for heroin, what right. are things that government can do and that communities can do to make a difference on that? Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, buprenorphine on that one. Um, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're not going to meet a lot of happy uh, heroin addicts out there, it's, it's generally not, you know, an existence that anybody aspires to. And and wants to have um, and buprenorphine um, being as effective as it is. I mean, there's you know countless studies out there. The fact that any doctor in the United States can prescribe um, morphine, fentanyl, you know, oxycontin, whatever, and seven percent of American doctors are licensed um, have the waiver to prescribe buprenorphine uh, amidst what is a national health epidemic. I mean, you kind of have to wonder if, if this was a flu epidemic. Would we give 7% of our doctors the cure to prescribe? Probably not. Um, so I think it definitely starts there. Um, if there's somebody who 
is so committed to being a heroin addict, they just love it and they don't want to get help. Um, you know, there there is uh, a buprenorphine um, implant that makes it, um, you know, easier to, uh, I guess I shouldn't have said somebody who really wants to because that's, I don't think that, that exists. But, um, uh, you know, with, with it, in, like, if you're taking it every day, um, as I do, then, you know, I could decide if I wanted to, I'm not going to take this anymore and I'm going to go out and relapse. Um, you know, so for, for someone who's in that kind of, um, you know, situation, I, I think um, the implant becomes invaluable. But I mean, really just making it more readily available, I think, will, um, will address um, much, of the, much of the problem. Um, A lot of the no debate um, that I've heard sort of in legislative circles around decriminalizing butes so that it can be available on the street is that, um, yeah. you know, people might enjoy using it and that would be problematic. Um, that's the implication. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on that, because that for me is um, that really yeah. gets into that legislating morality well, idea. Well, and, and before you respond, David, I would add to that that I know this isn't bu buprenorphine. I never say it right. Um, you just said it right. Oh, hey, we gold star to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the other uh, thing I tend to hear about uh, Narcan and quick remedies for o overdoses, and and I think they fall into kind of the same thought trench where people are like, oh well, all you're doing is enabling this behavior. If people don't have the threat of ODing anymore, then they're not going to give up heroin. If people have a gentle way to come down from heroin abuse, they're not or misuse, they're not going to take it. You know, it's just like, I think that there's, I, yeah. I just want to put that out there because I think those are some thoughts that are moving around in the community. Sure. I mean, I, I, I definitely um, understand. Uh, I, I can totally see the Narcan argument from both sides. Um, I mean, you know, I was very care. I mean, the, the, the heroin was not anywhere near as strong um, when I was using as it is today. But, um, you know, I, I was very, very careful, um, uh, you know, with as obviously it's not a regulated, you know, consistent product with quality assurance. But, um, you know, there was no Narcan option um, back then. So I, I can certainly see the argument of, you know, well, if I know that I can be revived because there's Narcan, I'm going to be less careful. And, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, you know, can of worms that that opens um, on the buprenorphine side. I mean, I Wait, think can I pause really... you for a second? Because I yeah. and please correct me if this is an assumption. I would imagine that the financial privilege that you brought to your addiction meant that you were able to be more careful about the quality of heroin that you were purchasing. Um, I and mean, I could be like, please tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's it's it's not true. Um, okay. I mean, you know, there's uh, I, I didn't have special drug dealers like, um, you know, uh, rich guy um, drug dealers. I, I went to the same drug dealers in, in you know, bad neighborhoods um, as everybody else. And, um, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's an illegal product. So uh, it, it's not like, you know, I got the Armani um, of heroin and uh, everybody else was, you know, buying, the, you know, um, Walmart brand. Uh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> you no know, heroin. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, but I mean, I, you know, I think with, with any, with anything, I mean, there's just some level of, of common sense as far as, um, 
you know, supply and demand goes. If there's a demand for anything and it's hard to get, there's, it's going to be diverted and there's going to be a black market. I mean, you know, I remember um, when I was a kid, there were always people in on three corners of the city selling DVDs of first-run movies, um, you know, because you couldn't otherwise get it, um, not because they were crushing it up and, um, you know, snorting it <laughs> or injecting it. Um, you know, there, there was a demand. So the, the street level of buprenorphine um, business I, I wholeheartedly believe is not about a bunch of people who want to get high um, because you really can't get it's it's not a drug that gets you high and if you're on the street looking for um, some type of opiate to get high from you know there's a whole world of options before you end up with um, with buprenorphine which isn't really going to do anything um, to you in you know un- unless you're looking to stave off withdrawal in which case the decriminalization thing i mean i i, I think um you know we i think everything really just needs to be thought through decriminalize if by that you mean you know anybody can get it and it's available anywhere um i mean i think that's a little bit um reckless i mean i think it should be available to anyone who needs it the way that advil um is uh, and especially if it's if if the point of it is to um, not use heroin, I mean that's what it's for. Then we should absolutely be encouraging people to get it. Um, you know, and, and and similar with Narcan. I mean, I I, I again I see the argument of um, you know uh, how somebody could be more cavalier, knowing that they can be um, revived. But you know, a life is a life, and. The you know well we're just postponing death and they're going to die anyway and, and all of like that um, you know okay well nevertheless you still don't want people dying um, and we're all going to you know. die anyway so we're all yeah yeah know. and we all fight against that <laughs> <Yes>. so <laughs> yeah um, right I'm trying to achieve uh, immortality by not by not dying um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> Well, I actually think that's a great place to pause and move over to some of our underwriters, give them a little moment in the spotlight. Emily, David, and I shall return momentarily. Stay tuned. back. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. I am your host Olga Peters and I have my co-host here Emily Kornheiser, state rep for the Wyndham County, as well as David Poses who is an expert on mental health <laughs> issues <laughs> and addiction <laughs> issues. Um, I think he doesn't want to be called an expert, Olga. Oh no. For the purpose of this show, you you are. (laughs) For the purpose of this show, you are. Because you know much more than Emily and I do on on this issue, which is why we're so glad you're here today. Happy to be here. So, one thing we were talking about off air is you know, you framed it really well. You said that substance misuse is really a health issue, it's not necessarily a law enforcement issue. And and so if that's the case, and since we have Emily here, who will in January go back to the State House and be working on a number of policies in general, how do we set policy for something that really should be a health issue rather than the way 
society has treated it for years, which is more in the realm of um, law enforcement. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think po- what Portugal did um, in 2002 um, is a great model. Um, they decriminalized um, they decriminalized everything, but made it illegal to sell drugs. Hmm. Um, and so if you are uh, caught, you know, in a, in a transactional type of situation, um, they encourage you to get help. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's such a it's such a complicated issue that there's really no, um, you know, simple, simple way to uh, to resolve it. But I mean, if you if you think of it in the sense of, um, you know, you hear a lot about, well, the, you know, it's the, it's the cartel's fault. And if we just called them terrorist organizations, uh, you know, and bombed them, it would stop the flow of drugs. And, you know, there's going to be demand whether it's legal or illegal. Um, so rather than pretend that if we eradicated all the drugs, you know, nobody would want drugs anymore, um, let's be realistic here. There's, there's major demand for, um, for opioids right now. I mean, we're, we're um, living in an instant gratification society where more and more people are, are you know, dealing with uh, depression and, and other issues, and um, heroin is a painkiller, and, you know, depression is emotional pain. Um, so there's nothing we're going to do that's going to make people say, you know what, I don't want it anymore, forget it. Um, I would approach it from a, you know, it's, look, everybody knows it's bad for you. Um, there's nobody who tries heroin for the first time and then later finds out that it's, um, not only illegal, but harmful. Hmm. Um, so if, if we, if we go into it from the perspective of, uh, you know, look, anybody who wants help, um, it's available and uh you know come up with some kind of program that makes sense um in terms of making you know uh buprenorphine or or methadone or or you know whatever it is that's going to work on an individual basis um available i think that's going to lead that's going to reduce harm it's certainly going to reduce crime Uh, i mean if we're looking at it from the sense of uh, you know, the drugs are illegal, and so people are stealing to get the money to pay for them and, and all of that. Like, I, I think everything is causal um, in, in the, you know, in the whole, um, you know, situation. So, so I think can't in, really, yeah. I think in Vermont at this point, many people would say that we have done that. So we have drug courts where certain people in certain areas of the state can... Um, be really focused on treatment a lot you know as part of how they are making amends for whatever crimes um happened we hypothetically don't have waiting lists anywhere in the state and so i'm curious and yet that's still not working because i get the sense that treatment um is still not accessible for a lot of people and so i'm curious if you have a sense of like what accessible treatment really actually means on the ground um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really different for everyone. I mean, it's you know, it, it's an it's an individual um, you know, it's a very personal problem. And um, I mean, I think the fact that you know you can walk into a Starbucks and demand any kind of you know coffee and they'll customize it to your taste. Um, we should be able to have a recovery system um, that meets each individual person's needs. Um, so. 
you know, my reasons for using heroin are going to be different than your reasons for using heroin. And what it's going to take to get me clean is going to be um, different for you. Um, so, um, you know, having kind of a, a, a suite of holistic services, um, I think, is really crucial. I mean, it, my recovery wasn't just I got buprenorphine and everything was fine. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm still in therapy um, you know, once a week, uh, and I take antidepressants. Like it's a whole, you know, um, regimen of things um, that I do to stay well. And so the idea of you know we'll just we'll we'll, we'll decriminalize buprenorphine or we'll hand it out like candy, um, you know, or we'll open rehabs all across the state. It's like it's there, there's not just a there's no silver bullet here. And I think that part of the problem is we're we're so. Um, you know, it's such a reactive situation, and we're we're scared, and we want answers, and this is such a huge problem. And what do we do? And there's really there's no you know oh if we just do this everything will be fine. Um, it's a it's a, um, a you know a smorgasbord of uh, um, of solutions that need to come together. And um, I, I would add to that too. Um, one thing that complicates the issue is that quite often there's hurt on both sides. Um, someone is hurting and it led them to use heroin as an example. Uh, but then if they say break into someone's car, uh, yep. to steal things, now you have another person who has been hurt by yeah. the situation. And I, I think that also complicates things at times because it means that society can be screaming for different solutions. You know, mm -hmm. some people are like, look, I just want to lock them all up. And somebody's like, no, look, we need to do something more compassionate, you know, and, and well, but I there think needs that to complicates be, things. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what there's such a, a swath of growth um, in the middle. I mean, you know, as we were saying earlier on, I mean, you know, if you if you commit a crime, um, the, the crime has been committed. So, you know, if, if you break into somebody's car to, uh, you know, steal a purse in order to pay for your heroin, the purse was stolen. Whether you are a drug addict or not, um, you know, that happened. And so you should be responsible for that. Um, you know, addiction is a disease and all of that, you know, um, is fine. Um, so there, so, so your, your recovery process should include some kind of reparation, um, you know, for that. I mean, I think we should be not more lenient, but more compassionate. Um, you know, a bunch of like thrill seekers who go around stealing cars for fun is very different than, um, uh, you know, somebody who, who thinks they're going to, you know, die without drugs, um, you know, uh, uh, breaking into somebody's house. I mean, you know, again, harm was done, no question. Um, but I think it, it does need to be viewed on, a, on an individual basis. Um, and also, you know, are we talking about a, a repeat effect? Is this the first time? this happen? Are we talking about a repeat offender? I mean, if, if there's somebody who is consistently doing this and we're giving them chances and we're giving them access to buprenorphine and methadone and, and whatever, and, and they keep slipping and they keep, um, you know, this keeps happening, then um, I, I still don't think that, you know, we'll just put them in jail and the problem will be solved is that's, that's still not solving the problem. Um, I mean, someone will be satisfied with that with that outcome because, you know, the cars will stop being broken into. Um, but what, what are we actually looking to do here? Are we trying to help people get well? I mean, I, and I think that's the thing is that every, all the stakeholders have different objectives here. Like we, we want to stop the crime around drugs. 
We want to help the drug addicts to get well. Um, sometimes those issues are at odds with each other, and that's where the um, you know individual approach I think is is crucial. And I think that um, some of the restorative justice programs that we have operating mm-hmm. in Vermont right now going a long way to that middle ground. So we can have that's individual great. conversations that are between the harmed parties, the person doing the harm, and include you know restorative and reparative practices that might include treatment Mm -hmm. um, and might include community service or some sort of payment or whatever it is so that you can really address the issue holistically. When I think about treatment options that are holistic, though, I get um, a little more overwhelmed. And so I've really appreciated what I've seen you, um, what I've read in your writing about this link between depression and addiction. and I certainly know I've been really um, sort of bewildered the last few years as I meet more and more young people, especially young people living in poverty with crippling levels of anxiety. Mm. Um, And those two particular mental health struggles, I think are, you know, at epidemic levels in our communities, particularly are um, hit folks who have, um, chronic trauma, family trauma. And mm-hmm. so it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, opiates would be the solution to that chronic yeah. anxiety, trauma, and pain. Chills the pain, yeah. Yeah, totally. So we are doing such a terrible job as a community of helping people treat the depression and anxiety when the opiates aren't there. Yeah, And so I can't even imagine what it looks like to do it as sort of a now as a co-occurring condition, essentially. So I'd I love mean, if you could walk us through that a little bit. Okay. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, uh, on, on the community level, um, you know, any community that you might be talking about in Vermont, I think is, is definitely reflective of, of the situation nationally. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but I want to say it's like, um, opioid addicts are uh, like four times more likely to have some kind of men- uh, the most common mel- mental illnesses, um, anxiety, depression, um, or some kind of trauma than the general population. Um, and so, you know, that's a well-known fact. And yet in rehabs across the country, um, 3% of comorbid um, addicts are treated for um, depression, anxiety, whatever, and addiction. If you go to rehab, you're, you're being treated for drugs. Um, it's a, it's a, there's no you know national standard of care. There's not really an uh, uh, you know some governing body that oversees you know all the rehabs. Um, and that's really you know it, it, they're it's a business, and so their business is getting you off of drugs. Um, it's not. Uh, you know, you might happen to address um, the issues while you're there. I mean, I, I I didn't. It was actually turned around on me when I went to rehab. What do you um, mean by that? Well, so I, I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, the 1990s. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if this type of situation still goes on, but I got to rehab um, and I went to, uh, you know, the best rehab <laughs> and, uh, and, they said, um, you know, addiction is a disease, and uh, it, it, the only way to get well is to put your life um, and will in God's hands and work the 12 steps of AA. So 
as a devout atheist at the time, um, you know, that just it, none of it made any sense to me. And the fact that my mom had had cancer not long before, and I knew that I had actively sought heroin out and definitely made a choice to use it, um, I wasn't buying the disease business either. So um, I told my counselor, you know, look, that none of that, that's all crazy. Um, I couldn't handle my feelings. I was, I was too weak. And, uh, you know, look, um, depression is emotional pain and heroin is a painkiller. And I connected those dots and it was off to the races. And it's that simple. And so he said, um, well, uh, rationalizing and justifying is addict mentality. And it's a lot easier to make excuses for why you use drugs than it is to admit that you have a disease and put your life and will in God's hands. Um, and I just, I, you know, I, I, I heard that and I was kind of bewildered because, and I said to him, you know, look, I mean, I think it would be a hell of a lot easier if I said, oh, okay, no problem. It's totally not my fault. Um, it's a disease, you know, disease made me stick needles in my arms, you know, tell my parents that. And, uh, you know, no, like that to me was much easier um, than what I was trying to accomplish. But, um, you know, they, they, they just, they weren't having it. And so the idea um, from there of, of dealing with the, with the depression, there was no way that I was going to bring that up. Um, you know, in rehab. And, and, and I think, you know, it, it, it like, you know, you, there's a lot of kind of talking that goes on there. So, uh, you know, that kind of stuff did come up. But in most cases, um, you know, it turns into, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're making excuses for using. Um, you know, I was really sad because of whatever. And so, uh, you know, I went out and got high. They're, they're, not, they're not looking at the underlying, you know, what caused you to do that. Um, you know, they're in the rehab business, so their job is to get you off drugs. But the problem is, you know, if, if sobriety is, um, is, the, is the, you know, staunches the wound of, of addiction, um, recovery is an entirely different matter. And they're not, they, you know, it's not an automatic transition, and they don't necessarily happen, you know, concurrently. Um, it's not a, okay, I've stopped doing drugs, I'm fine now, everything's, you know, no problem. Um, you know, it's, it's, I stopped doing drugs. Now I'm way more vulnerable than I was yesterday. Um, and I'm going to be like that for a very long time. So, you know, all of my insecurities are, are amplified and magnified and, um, you know, everything's going to be a lot worse. Um, you know, but you're there for 30 days and there's certainly no drugs there. So you're definitely not going to relapse. Um, and then you're out and, uh, you know, I, I, I think unless, you know, just going back home without working on any of the issues that led you to drugs in the first place, I, you know, it's, it's really, it's not surprising that 90% of, uh, of opioid addicts, if not higher, um, relapse after a traditional 30-day inpatient um, stay in rehab. And I think um, it's actually I mean, more like 14 days around here lately. Um, okay. Yeah, it's been one, nearly long enough. One line that's been um, floating around um, the human services um, community here for a while and is very, very compelling to me, but I have really have no idea if it's true or not, is the idea that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. And really curious for your thoughts on that, especially in light of the fact that from my experiences um, with my own depression and with loved ones' depression, as well as with anxiety, they're incredibly disconnecting mental states. Mm -hmm. um, they, in fact, yeah. make connection almost impossible. 
Yes. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I think addiction, the fact that it thrives on secrecy um, makes it isolating all by itself. Right. Um, so even if you were the pinnacle of mental health before um, you became a drug addict, which I think is, you know, there's a 0% chance of that, um, you're still going to be isolated and, and disconnected. So, I mean, you know, for me, um, feeling like I mattered, feeling like I was part of something, um, that would have gone a really long way, you know, that, that human connection um, with anything. And so, I mean, you know, when, when I, um, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Vermont, I went to school in Vermont, um, I spent a few summers in Vermont, I always, you know, look at the, you know, he went to Marlboro. Well, I don't know if I told you that. Olga. I don't think yeah. you did. But Sorry. That's okay. What's Marlboro? <laughs> no, I was. <laughs> Emily was uh, saw me making a face, and it's only because the building just shook in a very strange way. So I was, I was in this building once when an earthquake went through the, oh, okay. the area. So that's why I was making funny faces. Sorry, guys. Well. <laughs> Keep on going. Connection. Okay. Um, Disconnection. Yeah. So Sorry. right. So so the idea of, um, I mean. I think, like in in my fantasy world, um, there's a there's a rehab uh, that takes place on you know a farm, um, and so th- there's there's no drugs. Like somehow they you know figure out a way to uh, keep the drugs out, and there's a lot of talk therapy, and there's every medical resource um, that's needed, and you've got doctors and therapists and all that. But there's everybody has some kind of um, you know, job, and it can be, you know, uh, uh, as menial a task as, you know, uh, I'm going to, you know, drag the wheelbarrow up the hill with the, uh, you know, milk in it or whatever. Um, I'm there. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, that doesn't matter. That was some adorable buckets, city slicker. Whatever. Mo- you know, planning. give me a job at the farm, right? Yep, whatever. Yep, you're good. You're I, good. I, I don't have a lot of experience, right? So, <laughs> so my job, like, I'm, I'm, I'm relied on. I'm part of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and if I don't get that wheelbarrow up the hill, um, you know, there's going to be, you know, somebody else is going to get messed up. And so I'm going to feel good about myself just by virtue of the fact that I'm contributing to something, um, and I'm, and I'm needed and I'm feeling, you know, valued. That's going to, that's going to really help. And I'm surrounded by, um, you know, people who have experienced what I've experienced. So it's not like, you know, I mean, most of my life. Um, you know, living, living with this, uh, everywhere I went felt alienating because, I mean, my first thought walking into just about any room is I'm the only person here who's ever, you know, injected heroin, whoever, you know, tried heroin, whatever it is. Nobody has any idea, you know, what that's like. Um, and so the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm on this farm, I've got responsibilities, people are, you know, patting me on the back and saying, good job, and I'm contributing to something and I'm connecting with people, um, I think I think that would be huge, and it you know it doesn't have to be a farm. I mean, I I, I don't know why that's always kind of my knee jerk reaction. Um, you know, it can be, uh, you know get a get a um, you know room full of uh, you know musical instruments and teach everybody how to play you know band. I mean, whatever. Um, but uh, you know, just something that that you feel like you're part of something. No, it's um, amazing the drive to be of use and of use to others, and how mm-hmm. often we forget. Um, both how important that is for our sense of sort of dignity and self in the world, but also how it is the ultimate way that we connect with other people in a heartfelt way. And how few of us 
feel like we have the skills to be of use. Right. Well, and I will say, I think your 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 thoughts of a farm actually makes a lot of sense because on a farm, there are people, I mean, what you do really has consequence. If you do not yeah. take care of the animals, they will not thrive. And then well, I'm the wheelbarrow guy. So. You're the wheelbarrow guy. <laughs> but, but still, you're doing it. If you don't it. take the rocks yeah. out of the garden. If the you don't take don't the rocks grow. out of the garden, plants don't grow. You know, things have definite consequences. And so you can, yeah. you can see the impact you're having on the world. I mean, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I think the other, the other kind of charm of that type of situation is, I mean, if there were, you know, rehab farm, um, I, I have to imagine that there's going to be people out there that would be ecstatic to buy products. Um, you know, from this farm. And so it becomes a self-sustaining thing where you're, you're, you know, rehabs where they're charging people fortunes of money um, and families are, are, are going into, you know, massive debt um, to put their kid in a program that they have at best a 10% chance of success. Um, that just, like, there, there's something terribly wrong here. And I think it, it, you know, everything comes back to this fundamental problem of we're reacting to a problem that was created because we weren't proactive and saw it coming in the first place. And so we think of these solutions and it's like, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll stick that guy in jail. And then, you know, he won't, he won't rob people anymore. But we're not looking at the whole situation. And, um, you know, everybody and their mother wants to solve this problem, but nobody really has an answer for, like, how do we actually solve it? And, and what are we even trying to do here? Like, what, what, what are we looking to accomplish? Um, because I think, you know, half the, half the people in the room are going to say, we well, get rid of drugs, and, you know, and the other half is, is going to say, you know, put all the you know, junkies in jail. I mean, it, everybody has different objectives, but that's, you know, nobody's even talking about that. Um, mm-hmm. There seems to be a massive disconnect in the conversation about the connection. Hmm. Um, anyway, so. And we're yeah. just, just uh, for David and Emily's uh, clock, we have just about 10 minutes before the top of the hour. So... Emily, anything you, you kind of wanted to add or really want want to hear from David? Well, one thing I'm really struck by is how um, even this show is in some ways an act of repair in the community. Mm. That we, by supporting people to understand how to be useful and of use in a democracy that helps people find ways to connect with their neighbors, um, and so the more places and spaces that we have in this community, the more we're sort of mining that prevention bench. But I, so I think that's just something that I want to make sure is said before we close. Separately, continuing to really think about um, this mental health piece and mm-hmm. how we integrate it into treatment settings and why it hasn't happened. And you kept on talking, David, about... Um, you know, it's the rehab facilities, you know, job. They're being paid to, you know, right. move people through the machine. And I've been really struck, and maybe I'm sort of um, going a little too off topic for closing here, but I did not realize that many of the spots that we have in our communities where people are getting treatment are actually privately owned, publicly oh, yeah. traded Hmm. corporations oh, and like wow. the fact that Brattleboro of all places would just like let that go as a reality was quite shocking to me mm-hmm. well I mean you know I think that's the thing is that um, at the end of the day 
it, you know, most of these are businesses. I mean, so I guess there's kind of two pieces that you have to unpack. I mean, one is they are definitely businesses, um, and even the nonprofits are still businesses. I mean, they can't operate without, you know, capital. Um, so, uh, you know, they're, they're going to, they're, I mean, they have to make money. Um, you know, and, and, uh, the other, the other piece, I guess, is, um, there's, because, um, AA is a faith and abstinence based program, and it is the locus of treatment at so many, um, treatment facilities, uh, you know, that's, that's the model that they go on. And so if it's, if it's an abstinence, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. AA is great for the people that it works for. Um, but it can't be the only thing, um, that we're, that we're using. And so that model kind of made it unnecessary to have medical professionals in a lot of rehabs. I mean, I don't recall there being doctors. Um, the rehab that I went to was, uh, you know, there, there were a bunch of different, um, you know, buildings uh, on the campus or whatever, but the, the, you know, spot that I was in, there, there were certainly no, you know, doctors there. So if, if I, I don't know what you, know, you have to do to be the average rehab, um, you know, drug counselor, um, but if that's the job, then they're not equipped to diagnose any kind of mental illness or treat it or prescribe the right medicine for you. I mean, that's so far beyond the bounds of what, um, you know, that job uh, entails. And so, I mean, looking back, the idea that my counselor said what he said to me about, you know, the, the, the God and, um, and disease and, and I was making excuses and all that business, like, I totally get it. He probably went to some kind of, you know, training program. It was, the, you know, the highest paying gig in town. Um, you know, maybe he was an aspiring social worker. I don't know. Um, but but in the but you had actually say. done the work to diagnose yourself and like to do the, a lot of the first step in mental health work. I'm really struck by the fact that given the demographics of Vermont, the state is paying for the vast majority of people who are in rehabs rehab. Hmm. And so yeah. we have tremendous leverage in informing what we are going to fund and what we're not going you should, to fund. You, That's a good point. You, you should. I mean... I, you know, I mean, I think any any knowing what we know today, the idea that any program um, would insist uh, would would not allow medically assisted treatment to me is just unconscionable. I mean, um, when when my mom had cancer, uh, you know, doctors treated her with medicine and surgery, and I'm a hundred percent sure that if they would have told her, you know, hey, look, find yourself a support group and everything's going to be okay, that she would be dead right now. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. And so, you know, um, there, there's got to be, it needs to be a, a comprehensive program that addresses all of the areas that are proven to work. I mean, there's enough studies out there that show, you know, what the, what the you know, kind of cornerstones are for um, a successful recovery. And knowing that, you know, everybody's different, there's still a lot of commonalities as far as there's got to be some kind of therapy. You know, there, there probably needs to be some kind of medication. Like all of these components need to be, I would think, if these are state-funded programs, it should be if you can't meet this minimum uh, level of criteria, then, you know, you're out. Um, so and, and, and that's that. As we close... I'm those cornerstones seem like an incredibly th thing mm -hmm. to, for us to hit as we close. So therapy to, you know, really get clear on 
why someone was interested in drugs in the first place and to deal with like all of the shame and trauma that comes from doing drugs. You know, I'm reminded again and again of the young women in our community and many young men who are turning to like some really pretty incredible sexual trauma after recovering or while recovering from their addiction because of what they had to do to get drugs. So therapy to deal yeah. with the stuff that happened while you were addicted, whatever was going on before and will be going on after medication mm -hmm. that's available. Um, whether that's, you know, bup is the right thing for a person or whether it's methadone. And then are there any other cornerstones that we should be thinking about as we sort of step into this as a rational problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, kind of general life planning um, would be important. What you're going to do after this. I mean, I, I think that's the other piece of the, of the you know, the, the rehabs that are in the rehab business. Once you, you know, not that they're all, you know, that callous, but like, it's not their problem. What happens to you when you leave? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like if, if you look at it like the way, you know, high schools and colleges treat their students, um, you know, I mean, Marlboro wants me to be <laughs> as successful as possible and they want to launch me into, um, you know, some kind of career that, that makes sense for me. And, you know, I'm sure that part of that is a hope that I will, you know, make a trillion dollars and, and, you know, help with their endowment. But um, there's got to be some component of, of all of these, um, of any, of any rehab that's like, okay, what are you doing after this? Because mm -hmm. if you're just going to go home and sit in your basement, you know, you're dead. And we've um, talked a lot about sort of step down housing options where people right. can still be in community, still feel of use as they're sort of stepping into this next phase of their life. We, we forget yeah. how, how vulnerable and delicate transition points are. For everyone. Yeah, for yes. everybody in any situation, yes. not just uh, yeah. someone who's coming out of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess that's kind of the thing that's missing in the national conversation. Is like there's, just, there's a complete absence of logic across the entire spectrum. I mean, what you just said about transitions, um, it's true. Change is hard for everyone in every situation, you know, no matter who you are. Um, there's going to be something different and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily going to be easy. So like, let's take that into consideration. Um, and if it's going to be especially, um, you know, tough because you're especially vulnerable, then what can we do to minimize the possibility of something bad happening to you? I mean, I, I, I'm, I really, I hate to think that any rehab, you know, wants you to relapse, but I mean, look, the fact is repeat business is not bad for them. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, um, well, on that note, David, um, I thought this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, anything quickly, Emily or David, you want to add, wish we had asked in like two minutes or less. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Thank you what? very much. This was really, I think we hit some really um, yeah. high points about like the basics of what we were talking about. And then I really appreciate sort of the nuance that you brought to this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about how things thrive in secrecy, um, what it means to be in community, what it meant to be in a community of people who had experienced what you'd experienced and how important that was for your recovery. I, I really um, loved what you brought up, David, about um, what actually brought you to use heroin in the first place, because I think we forget where our society is not always good with dealing with things directly. And so yeah. it kind of has a built in mechanism for people to build up coping mechanisms, whether that is something like a substance misuse or 
you know, sitting in your PJs and watching TV for hours on end, it, it can take many forms. But I, I think that is something as a society in general we need to be better at is helping people identify something as soon as quick as soon as possible and deal with it directly as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you Absolutely. so much for your time. And um, thank you uh, for having me. Yeah. We will talk soon. Take care, David. Okay. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. That is all we have today for the Montpelier happy hour. I am your host, Olga Peters. And of course, my guest, Emily Kornheiser. We thank you very much for tuning in today. If you want to listen to this or any past episodes of the Montpelier Happy Hour, you can go to the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. And you can also drop us messages on either of those pages. But also, Emily, how can people reach out to you if they have questions or concerns? Emily Kornheiser at Gmail, emilykornheiser.org, Emily Kornheiser <laughs> on Facebook and Twitter. And you can stop me on the street whenever you want. And I'm really excited because next week we are going to be talking about sex. All right. Can't get any better than that. Nope. (laughs) So tune in next week, 2 p.m. for the Montpelier Happy Hour. We will be talking about legislating morality and what that means for sex. Take care, folks. Bye.